Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Book Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to Helen Sword about her book, Stylish Academic Writing, published by Harvard University Press in 2012. Stretch your mind by stretching your writing. Don't be afraid to try new things. And keep in mind that even a few small changes make a big difference. Heady stuff. And it's where Helen Sword brings the reader by the end of her book, Stylish Academic Writing. Academic writing is not normally connected with our notions of style. In fact, the accepted view is that academic writing has earned about a C grade for style. Why is that? Why do we expect style from so much of what we read, but when it comes to research, style is out? A lot of researchers from a lot of disciplines would explain thus. Because we don't do style, we do research. If we were to let that answer fly, Helen Sword would not have a book-length subject to write about. Of course she does. In fact, she has a many-books-worth subject to write about her book about clear, vivid prose, The Writer's Diet, in its second edition, 2016, her book about successful writing habits, Air, Light, Time, Space, 2017, her book about the enjoyment of writing, Writing with Pleasure, due in 2022. And I haven't even mentioned helensword.com, Helen Sword's webpage about academic writing, for academic writers, and by this academic writer herself, Helen Sword. She finds a lot to say about the subject of academic writing and writing academics because we really must be saying more about both. I have, since leaving high school, asked myself why more attention isn't paid writing. I have, as you have probably, struggled over many a dull gray line of prose when outside the sun shone. I've witnessed my own prose, how is your own prose, in a paper, in my dissertation, in an article, take on the same dull grayness. That is my return for learning how to write like a linguist. You'll have a similar return for learning how to write in your field. I've since tried to unlearn that, to an extent. So... When a scholar accosts me with the opinion that writing comes, if at all, after the research, I've learned to interrogate the person, right on the spot if they'll stay. I say, we research right. In my mind, it's a compound verb. And those who act accordingly are the stylish academic writers of today's book. Helen Sword lays out the facts in stylish academic writing. The many scholars she interviewed agree on the need for good writing, and what's more, they know what it looks like when they read it. In every discipline, some scholars write well and are admired for it, and here's the big point, they enjoy success, and that is success in the physics they do, or in the sociology they do, not success in some newspaper article or being on a bestseller list. Helen Sword's analysis of the data proves how in every last discipline, wiggle room exists. No scientist, no computer expert, no philosopher can cry, I have no choice, I must write this way. 
And although writing guides do seem to reach their market in order not to be read, still, hundreds of these hapless books concur on how to write well, in the humanities and in the sciences. And how is just as do all stylish academic writers. On this fact space, Helen Sword builds her reasoned advice to us writing academics. She has no rules on offer. The fate of the average style guide tells us that there'd be no takers. Helen Sword does something different. She convinces. There is the flawless argument to prove why this noun over that noun. There are the snapshots of academics who know how to write complex matter in great prose. There are the thought-provoking questions about and the suggested paths into writing differently. And everywhere, in every letter, in every comma, in every space of the book, there is Helen Sword's own stylish academic writing taking us there. Helen Sword is a poet, scholar, teacher, and writing expert. She's professor of humanities at the University of Auckland and director of Helen Sword Consulting. A lot of academics write better because of Helen Sword's books and seminars and advice. That means a lot of researchers communicate better because of the work of Helen Sword. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between. Scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too, we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So, let's begin today's episode, Helen Sword and Stylish Academic Writing. Helen, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you so much, Daniel. Delighted to be here. Very good. Um, I think our readers would be quite interested to find out some of the background to the book. What led you to write this one? Well, um, if you had told me 15 or 20 years ago that I'd be pretty much exclusively writing about writing, I don't think I would have expected that. I started out as a literary scholar. I have a PhD in comparative literature. I published um, two single-authored books on modernist poetry, basically, um, looking at uh, 20th century, early 20th century poetry in English, German, and French mainly. And um, I was happy as a literary scholar, and I did all the usual work that we do of assigning papers to students and kind of despairing at what we got back and editing colleagues' work and occasionally despairing at what I read there. But um, mostly I thought of myself as a scholar and writer rather than an expert on writing in any way. But at some stage in about um, 2007, maybe, I, I had a handout that I used to give to my students after they submitted their first essay. And I would hand them back this one-page sheet of paper that had editing tips for them. And I'd basically say, now take your essay home again and think about the, this editing advice and then give it back to me. Because I, I found if I gave them the editing advice first, you know, they ignored it because they were just trying to get the paper in. And one year the, the handout was getting a bit old and shabby. So I 
kind of zhuzhed it up a bit. I gave it a new title, a new metaphor, the writer's diet, and handed that out to them. And it was all this advice about how to trim and tone their prose. And it was really interesting um, seeing how moving from this kind of abstract language of editing to something concrete and metaphorical, instantly that just sort of clicked with the students and they started handing the the handout out to their friends. And one of them asked me if she could use it in her school placement that she was doing with 12 year olds. And that was when I thought, Oh gosh, maybe I've, maybe I've got something here. So that was, um, that was kind of the seed of the writer's diet, which was this book that I published um, originally in 2007, I think, or eight. And then it was republished in 2016 by the university of Chicago press. And it's, um, it's really just about sentence level writing, which many other people have written about, but I came at it from, I think, just a, a bit of a different perspective. And I developed this online tool where you could drop in a bit of your prose and push a button and find out whether your writing was in need of a workout. And that just got me interested in looking at writing across all different disciplines, um, including academic writing. So I was just trying to find examples for that book. And, and I would go and I'd say, okay, I wonder how they write in business. I wonder how they write in um, evolutionary biology, whatever. And I found it was just fascinating looking at the stylistic differences across all these different disciplines. And I found that as a literary scholar who was used to doing what we call close reading, really parsing sentences, looking very carefully about how language works, I could apply those skills and that way of thinking to academic writing. So that was really what led to stylish academic writing then was me moving from looking just at how do sentences work to looking at how does academic writing work? What does it look like in different disciplines? So it's kind of taking snapshots I wasn't so worried about how did we get to this terrible point <laughs> where so many academics write in a way that seems almost designed to keep readers out. Um, that's a whole argument, a whole discussion that others have had. I was more interested in solutions. How do we move people into stylish academic writing? How do we show that stylish academic writing is not an oxymoron? because we don't often see the word stylish and academic together, do we? So that was meant almost as a, a provocation, just putting those words there. I always tell people if they don't like the word stylish, if that, if that doesn't resonate with them, just replace it with engaging, engaging academic writing. That's, that's what the book's about. So I started out with a book proposal that I sent off um, to an editor who seemed interested um, where I was basically just tearing down all this terrible writing. It turns out I'm really good at that. I can take a passage of really terrible writing and I can just pull it to pieces and explain to you how and why it's so terrible. And <laughs> it can be quite fun to do because we're trained, aren't we, as critics. We're trained to create, to, to criticize stuff rather than to create new things to some extent. And so I was tearing these things apart and I got back a reader's report saying, if you're trying to change the way academics write, maybe um, starting off by attacking them isn't the best 
rhetorical or pedagogical move. Right? When we attack people, it doesn't make them want to then read the book to find out how awful they are. And that was a real aha moment for me, I think, um, realizing that I needed to write a book that wasn't negative, wasn't trashing academic writing that's there now, but aspirational, finding the the lighthouse examples, finding the academics in all different disciplines who are writing stylishly already, looking at examples of their work, reverse engineering them to kind of demystify them and show what they're doing. Because I think it's really easy for us to say, well, so-and-so is a brilliant writer and I'm not, end of story. That may be true that they are brilliant in a way that we will never be, but they're also using a lot of techniques to, to write as clearly and persuasively and engagingly as they do that anyone can learn. So, you know, it's, it's like with sport, you, you may not ever be, um, you know, the best at a sport. You're not going to be like a professional athlete just because you play soccer every day for three hours, but you'll certainly get better than if you don't practice at all. So it really, Stylish Academic Writing is a book of techniques on some level, but it's a book of hope, <laughs> a book of aspiration. You can read these examples from writers all across the discipline, read my analysis of how they do what they're doing, and then you can say, ah, right, I'm going to try that. Yeah, and uh, that's certainly something that the book makes uh, very hands-on uh, at the end of each chapter, the things to do, for example, um, one after another of really very specific ideas on what you might try. And the formulation is always that, what you might try. Uh, first, a reflection on what it might be that you're doing or not. Does this ring true for you? And then a number of suggestions on how to maybe get around that habit. Mm. And I think ultimately I'm a teacher, <laughs> you know, so it, it was fine to write the, the first three chapters of the book are research based. They're about the background research that I did looking at a thousand academic articles across 10 different disciplines just to, to, to gauge what the stylistic conventions in those disciplines are. I have a chapter called A Guide to the Writing Guides. It looks at 90 different guides to academic writing to see whether there's any consistency there. What do they all, are there things that they all say people should do or are they contradictory? And the answer is a bit of both. Um, but I, I kind of bracketed those out separately. That's the foundation. I really wanted to make clear that I had a research base. This isn't an there's so many writing advice books that are essentially anecdotal to the extent that they're basically somebody who says, well, I'm a good writer. I'm going to tell you how I do it, um, which is helpful as far as it goes. But I really wanted to bring a multidisciplinary perspective and to bring some actual research that um, that debunks some of the myths that a lot of people hold about academic writing, like I must do this. I'm not allowed to use the first person in my discipline. I have to use these jargon words or people won't respect me, all those sorts of things. So I lay out the research in the first three chapters to kind of get academics confidence because that's what we trust. We trust expertise. But after that, the rest of the book is 
still research-based and that I've researched a lot of examples and, and analyzed them, but it's very much turning to what can you do? How can, it's very much practice-based in that way, which um, a lot of academic books actually aren't. They just present the research, but they don't give you that, that kind of bridge to how can you use it in your own practice. So as you say, I mean, you are a teacher. <laughs> it's mm. always about uh, somehow bringing across, as, as you wonderfully explained in, in your sheet of uh, the, the diet example, yeah, when you were teaching classes and then switched the metaphor and changed the phrasing and got people to, got students to look at what you were telling them before, <laughs> basically in a very different manner. Uh, yeah, and that, ultimately... That makes- well, I was going to say, ultimately, yeah, please, um, yeah. writing is teaching, right? You know, yeah. what we do mm-hmm. when we teach complex materials to undergraduates is on some level what we do when we write about our research as well. Although, you know, there's a range of different audiences we may be writing for. And it's exactly the same issues of, of um, translation, in a way, of taking complex ideas and making them understandable um, to somebody who may not be coming with exactly the same background as we are. So for me, you could take this book and turn it into a book about teaching communication, for example, about how to talk about academic subjects. And it would be pretty close to the same book, I think, in terms of the the techniques and the advice. But this in a way, um, I, I love the idea. Yes, writing is teaching. And I'm completely on board with that. I, I, I think very much in a, in a similar vein. But this brings us back to a, a point that you broach in the preface. And, and as you've said, uh, the book is about uh, being aspirational and being uh, about showing the way. It's not trying to go back over the ground of how did we get here? Why is writing that way? And yet it does still approach some of this form over content, the debate of form and content. Uh, And it's almost unavoidable that anyone picking up this book is going to have that at the front of their mind, aren't they? Um, This idea that, uh, well, doesn't style come second, let's say. (laughs) Uh, What would you say about that topic? Yeah, well, that's a that's one of those prejudices that I think needs to be um, demystified, actually. And I guess for me, coming as a literary scholar and poet, I've never believed that form and content are inseparable. You know, to write poetry is to use the form to express the content in a particular kind of way, and I don't think that's any less true of academic writing. But it is a very common perception of prejudice that somehow we do the research and then we write it up um, in some way that any other person writing about the same research would do as though there's, you know, one platonic article in the sky and our job is just to channel it down onto the page. And of course, writing isn't like that, even, even for the most, um, kind of rigorously structured scientific experiment, there are still choices about what you choose to foreground, how you present things, whether you uh, write in an active voice or in a passive um, verb construction. All of those things are choices that affect the content um, through the style and therefore affect the communication. So it's not as though we have this clear, plain, plain, 
prose. And then a stylish writer is somebody who just goes and ties some bows on it, you know, extra ornamentation. Um, The style is threaded through the, the style is the, is the content to some extent. And um, yeah, I always get the impression when people are talking about, yeah, it's the content over the form that, as you say, with these tying of bows, they seem to think that the good writing is the easy thing. It's the bad writing that's hard. (laughs) It's as if, you know, the the difficult prose that you end up, uh, you know, sloughing your way through as if that was difficult to produce. That's easy to produce, isn't it? Yeah. And it's precisely, yeah, as you say, precisely the opposite is the fact, which is, and I, I discovered this early on in this process of moving into writing about writing. It happened to be at a time when I had moved in my career from um, teaching literature mainly, although I still do that, to mainly working in an academic development unit. So doing kind of faculty development work, teaching and learning um, work with people from across the disciplines, which really suited my I guess, pan-disciplinary perspective that I took in stylish academic writing as well. And this was the first time I'd been exposed to higher education research writing. So I'd come up through literary studies. I was used to the lingo, you know, used to it, had internalized the way literary scholars work. And then I started reading these articles that were in higher education journals, and they were just impenetrable. And uh, I... I just found myself going, gosh, these are people who are writing about teaching and learning. They're writing about how students learn at university. Wouldn't you think you'd write in a way that would then be compelling and easy to understand for other people in any discipline who are teaching in higher education? But no, a lot of these articles were long-winded, very jargony, a very sort of in-language and that was one of the moments where I went, why is this happening? Is it just me (laughs) or is there really something about this language that's putting me off? You know, I, I don't think I'm stupid and yet I'm struggling to, to make my way through this. So I read an article that was called um, writing higher education differently, a manifesto on style. And for that article, this was kind of a prelude to stylish academic writing. I um, I looked at lots of different examples of stylish writing in different disciplines and created this sort of 10-point scale of what are 10 things that stylish writers tend to do, not necessarily every time, but it was things like having a compelling title and having an opening paragraph that draws your attention and writing in using concrete language and using an active voice. These 10 things, I found 10 academic writers who did most of these things. And then I went and I sort of applied that rubric to, um, to a hundred higher education articles. And, um, well, you'd have to read the article, but basically the score was not very impressive. Um, the the uh, mean score was, I think, 1.2 out of 10 <laughs> on how many of these things they actually did. So then I had the, so I had the puzzle of, okay, how am I going to write about this for a higher education journal pointing to what seemed to me, I mean, it was a manifesto it was saying we need to do better than this folks. 
So I decided to do something a little bit experimental. I made sure that the article itself had all 10 of these things. It did all 10 of these things. But I embedded within it a little mini article presenting the actual research part of it. And I did that um, in a style that did none of the 10 things. So it's this little mini article inside. And what I discovered was that writing the mini article was way easier, way, way, way easier than writing the surrounding stylish part. And it, I found that these long-winded, jargony, passive sentences, which I'd never allowed to write myself before, but when I allowed myself to write them, they just rolled out. It was so easy. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for me because I, I realized, oh, actually, some of this is, I think a lot of it's about anxiety and fear on the part of writers who think they have to write that way or they'll somehow get punished for it or the papers won't get accepted. And that's a legitimate fear to some extent because peer reviewers tend to uh, do a lot of self-cloning. So if you don't look just like them, they don't want to let you through the gate. But I realized a lot of it as well is just because it's easier. So going back to what you were saying, it's not like we're adding extra frou-frou um, afterwards because that's easy to do. Style cuts right through from the very beginning. And to write stylishly in a way that is, um, gets your reader's attention but also communicates or and also communicates complex ideas, that is a real skill and an art and uses a whole lot of technique that writers often don't learn or aren't taught. So they have to just pick it up as they go. And that's what the book's about. That's the argument that it's making. So Which exactly it makes definitely very clearly. I, um, I hate to uh, stay here in the foreground in the preface area of the book too long, uh, but th this, this idea, as you said, of writing is teaching just fascinates me. And I, I myself am uh, the director of a writing program here in Germany. And I'll often get as response, uh, particularly in the natural sciences, to some of my edits to the work that they're doing or suggestions that, uh, I mean, just a week ago I heard, I've never heard the word researchers in a biology article. <laughs> my, my first, my first, my first thought was, so I guess biology is being done by phantoms. <laughs> um, but, but there is something to be said for this idea that uh, I, I completely understand what you mean. It's what I practice myself. This trying to think as hard as you can and put that into words. I mean, if if that's one of the many definitions, perhaps, of style. But this easy writing, this in the discipline writing, uh, which is then uh, obviously what comes automatically, but is also what you expect. In other words, uh, you even say in the, in the preface, this is a bit of a risky business, what mm. you're about. Mm. Even, even the title itself, as you say, is, is a provocation of sorts. So what would be perhaps your advice to, I know many of my listeners are also writing center uh, teachers or tutors. Uh, what would be your advice to people who are dealing on the front line with that bias? Well, a couple of things come to mind. One thing I found with stylish academic writing was that a lot of that bias is founded on myth rather than reality. So probably the most frequent thing that I've heard in workshops with academics, and so this is both 
PhD students and then researchers who presumably already have publications out. I've had people tell me in absolute good faith that they are not allowed to use first person pronouns in their discipline. They just couldn't do it. And my response to that tends to be, really, are you sure? Because I heard that so much, particularly from social scientists. And I'd say, well, why can't you use first person pronouns? Well, because we have to sound like scientists. We have to sound objective and rigorous. And so I have a whole chapter on pronoun usage. And one of the things I did was I looked at these at 500 academic articles, um, 50 each from 10 different disciplines, and just looked, okay, do they use first person pronouns or not? And I, I've got a chart in there that shows. <laughs> the fact is, I mean, this was just a snapshot, and I'm sure you can find individual journals, certainly, and also probably a few disciplines or sub disciplines where it is true that you just don't find person, first person pronouns. But the ones I looked at, I looked at medical research in some of the top journals, um, you know, Lancet and um, JAMA and those sorts of things. I looked at evolutionary biology. Again, I looked at the top journals and then I just looked at the most recent articles. So there's no cherry picking. I was just getting a randomized sample. And I looked at computer science. Now, I would have thought those are all pretty sciencey disciplines. And if it were true that scientists don't use the first, first person pronouns, that would be the case in all three disciplines. Instead, I found that all of them, um, a preponderance of the articles, do use the first person. Now, it's we, not I, because they're all being written by co-authors. It's not what I would call a personal voice. It's we, the researchers, not we, you know, these 10 people who are also having conversations outside of the lab or something. It's a very sort of academic we. But you've got the first person pronouns there. Likewise, in evolutionary biology, it was almost every single article because they actually have quite a, um, a, a conversation. Well, that's not what, the right word, not a conversational style, but a sort of storytelling style. They're telling you what they did, what happened, what they found, what they expected to find, um, what they're doing that's different in relationship to the, to the previous um, research literature. And then likewise, in computer science, it was very much I or we in most of the articles. Um, and so that surprised me. There was actually a higher percentage of, of um, personal pronouns in the sciences than in the social sciences, where people are holding back from using them because they don't think they'll sound scientific enough, right? And even there, the disciplines I looked at, anthropology, psychology, um, higher education, there were more pronouns than not. Um, higher education was an interesting one because there it was about half used personal pronouns and half didn't. Also about half were single authored and half were co-authored, usually by two to five authors. But there was no particular correspondence between whether things were single or co-authored and whether they were in the first person or not. It was almost like a, like a pizza cut into four slices for looking at those, those four factors. And 
That suggested to me a relatively young discipline. Higher education has not been a uh, uh, discipline in the same way as other, other parts of education for as long. Um, it's a discipline that's still trying to figure itself out. And so there are a lot of authors who go into it and think, oh, I better be safe and not use first person pronouns, or maybe I'm not supposed to. And yet the fact that half of the articles do suggests that actually you have a choice. And that's really the key here. You have a choice. The discipline is not saying you have to use personal pronouns or you don't. Now, in some disciplines, it's clearly conventional to do one or the other. So it might be 90% of the articles do one or the other. But then you look at that other 10% and you go, well, if 10% of the articles can buck the trend, that means you have a choice. You can decide, you can make a decision not to use personal pronouns or to use them, and you have a chance of your article getting published either way. And so some of these arguments about why you can't write more stylishly, more personally um, in active sentences, whatever else, turn out to be just, um, they're not arguments at all, they're actually myths that people have learned often, I mean, I suspect that often there's one teacher or one supervisor lurking in the background who said, oh, you can't use personal pronouns in academic writing. And people just internalize that, accept it as the law, and um, somehow manage not to notice all the other articles they're reading that <laughs> do the opposite. So I guess they were paying attention that day, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really interesting, but it's born out of fear. It's like, I must not get this thing wrong. There is this law, I must follow it. So a big part of what I'm trying to do in the book is just to demystify that and to say, well, first of all, look around and see if, if your myths are actually true. Chances are they're not. Secondly, if you want to do things differently from what the kind of dominant mode is, Find some exemplars in your discipline. Find the examples of authors whose work you really love, of the big names in the discipline who do the things that you want to do, and use those as your touchstone, not all the terrible writing that you're reading. I think all too often we read this really difficult, opaque academic prose and go, oh, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be doing too, and then just fall into doing it to the point where we don't even notice anymore that that's what we're doing. Or it's a kind of mystical curtain behind which sacred things are happening, and we feel that complex, difficult, impenetrable means good. Yeah. <laughs> it means that you've, you've, you're getting your hands on something. Yeah, I hear that a lot. Um, I've worked with and talked to a lot of academic writers, and I've never heard anybody say I'm intentionally trying to mystify my my reader or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, um, I don't really have anything to say, so I'm trying to hide it behind a curtain of big words. You know, nobody or hardly anybody really wants to do that. <laughs> I think. Well, I, I, yeah, no, clearly, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put into question the academic uh, system. I, I meant more from the reader's perspective, from the from learner, the reader's perspective. From, and then it's the a student, real, yeah. it's a real critique that society makes towards academics. Oh, they're just, you know, doing all this mumbo jumbo to keep us out. 
I don't think that's actually what we're trying to do, but it is the result of what happens when we, mm. we speak in this kind of in language. And for me, part of writing this book was then going back to literary studies and looking at what I'd been acculturated to do. And I wrote in a style that I thought was relatively clear. Um, and I think, you know, probably it probably was compared to some people. And yet I used a lot of sort of in-jokes and, you know, big words. I certainly, I have an anecdote in the book of, of um, just learning how these big words acted as kind of secret handshakes and people would look impressed when I used them. So, you know, greatest moment of my PhD years was in a seminar and coming out with having a sentence that had the word, um, had the words epistemology and ontology in the same sentence. And I knew what they meant and I knew how to use them. And I was like, whoa, baby, you know, <laughs> I've got that power. And I, oops, sorry, that's my dog. Um, no problem. <laughs> he was, you know, those words really set him off. <laughs> no, but, you know, I saw the looks of admiration, um, you know, around the seminar table from the other students and the approving nod from my professor. And of course, I was off to the races then with those sorts of words. And it was only when I gave my mother a copy of my dissertation, she said, oh, my, I'm going to have to get a thesaurus to read this, you know, or a dictionary. I thought, oh, my God, is that what I want to be doing to write something that my mother can't read? And my mother was a highly educated woman. You know, she, um, but that was her response to probably my first few paragraphs. And yet I had internalized it. I could talk to the other literary scholars and we could use these words and not feeling like we were doing it to bamboozle each other. We were actually doing it to communicate. That's what jargon is. It's a shortcut to communication if you're in the know. But it's also the fence that keeps out everybody else. And one of the questions I really had to come to was, is that what I want to do? Is that what I want my writing to do? And I've come down to a really resounding no. Now, let me just add to that. If you're writing in a, let's say, a scientific discipline and the main function of your article is to convey some very precise information to the small group of other people in the world who are working in your field and are specialists, then fine. There's nothing wrong with using that shortcut language because they're going to be your only audience. But if you're then trying to write about the same research for, let's say, a funding body that's more interdisciplinary, you're not going to be able to get away with that. You're going to have to translate. You're going to have to broaden what you do for a wider audience. And stylish academic writing isn't about making it accessible to anyone, anytime. It's making it accessible to whoever you need to read it. So a scientist communicating to another scientist will still be able to communicate more clearly using a lot of these stylish academic writing techniques. But they'll also have the tools then to give a talk to a public audience if they want to as well. And then to in that case, maybe cut down the technical language more and add a few more anecdotes and metaphors and jokes and all the things that bring in that audience. But they're all 
kind of levels of the same thing, which is thinking about the importance of writing clearly and well, which ultimately is what good style is. Mm, right. That uh, that reminds me a lot of what you uh, say in the second chapter there about disciplines. And I can imagine perhaps that you have plenty of experience, so you can be my sounding board perhaps for this idea. Um, I can imagine that people who are perhaps more advanced in their careers would be the ones who would move a little bit more fluidly between the different audiences that you were just describing. But as I was saying before, a student or a graduate student or a postdoc, someone who's really just finding their feet in a particular discipline, um, they are perhaps more likely to be uncertain as to what it is the discipline allows and doesn't allow. And that's a obviously a, a horrible position to be in because when you start thinking allow, don't allow, your writing suffers, I would say, automatically. Absolutely, yeah. And you use, you use in that chapter a really interesting quote from, from a social scientist. I don't have the name right here in front of me, but you talk about the fractal distinctions inside of different disciplines. And I mean, anyone who's spent any time in academia knows exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, what would it be that you would perhaps then offer as, as advice to the starting out person, be it uh, a beginning of a career or just the beginning of graduate studies, who is trying to find his or her way in that in that world, and obviously writing as we all must do. Yeah, well, it's a it's a great question because I consider that to be the danger zone. Um, even when I was working on the writer's diet, just looking at sentence level stuff, I was really thinking of what happens somewhere between being an advanced graduate, um, undergraduate, and moving into postgraduate study, um, and then beyond perhaps into an academic career. That's the danger moment. That's where um, people, and I would have experienced this myself, you know, we start to, our sentences get longer, our subject matter gets more complex and more abstract. And so we start to write the longer sentences and the boggier sentences and pull in the jargon words and all those sorts of things. And sometimes we get approval for doing that as well, which kind of eggs us along. But sometimes we're a bit mystified by it because we, we're reading things that seem to do that. And then we're trying to imitate it. And yet then our teachers maybe aren't so happy with it. It's, it's a real it's a real negotiation through. Um, I guess my advice would be read stylish academic writing early on, particularly those chapters on convention. And just if you can go in with, with the knowledge that a convention is not a law and that the best way to learn is from the exemplars, not from the lowest common denominator. If you can kind of keep those principles in mind, then you can you you can maybe avoid falling into the bog. <laughs> and I, I quote in the book somewhere. Some nobody wants to be in the bog, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I quote some um, social evolutionists who talk about how in human um, culture, we learn by imitation. That's the main way we learn, whatever culture you're in. If you see people eating with forks, you will learn to eat with a fork, right? That's just a natural imitative kind of response. So as academics, if we see people writing long, boggy sentences, we go, okay, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to write long, boggy sentences too. The only way this changes 
in human evolution is either there's a crisis, so everybody has to go out and discover a new food source or something, really learn some new skills very quickly, or people learn by um, exemplars who then the, the people who do things differently and then become kind of the elders that we look at. And in popular culture, you know, when you start seeing your favorite rapper wearing a different style of sunglasses than you've ever seen before, you're much more likely to go and try that style of sunglasses yourself than if your parents are wearing them because you're not going to see them as, as a model to go and do something different. But the third way that we learn that we change is through education. So taking us through a process where we actually have to challenge our norms, think about them, compare different alternatives, and go through that kind of extra work, but also the confidence building to say, okay, I'm going to buck the trend here because this other thing is actually is actually better. You know, if everybody's growing their crops a certain way, but somebody else has has come up with a new way that's unconventional but works better and you're studying you know agriculture you're going to have the confidence then to move to that new thing whereas if you're just out in the field and the guy in the field next door is doing something different you're going to go uh, no I'll just keep doing what I know so with I that never in liked mind him. <laughs> sorry I, I never liked my neighbor anyway so that's right <laughs> but um so most of us, this is just something that I found out very clearly in the research I did for my book on, on how successful academics write. Um, most of us are never trained to write in our disciplines. Um, at most, we might have something like a semester of research methods or something like that, but very few people anywhere at any university in the world, as far as I can tell, actually spend time as, let's say, part of their PhD studies or certainly you know, post-PhD in an educational environment where you're being presented with a range of alternatives, where you're being taken through expert-led exercises on thinking through different ways of doing things. And so to have the confidence to write in a way that's, that's not kind of the, the conventional norm um, it takes either a crisis or education or enough people changing the norm that you start to do it as well. And I would say for most of us at that kind of age of um, advanced undergraduate and starting postgraduate, education is going to be the route to that. And if you're not getting it as part of your PhD, well, there are a gazillion great books out there on academic writing. That, and just on writing style generally, that you can avail yourself of to get that kind of confidence in writing in a way that isn't the convention if you don't like the convention. And it's a really common thing that people go, I don't want to have to write that way, but I don't know what my other choices are. Or I tried to write in this other way, and then my supervisor says I can't. <laughs> and that was really difficult because that's a power differential then. And ultimately, getting the PhD is probably more important than having a really zingy title on your dissertation. But exemplars can be useful there. That's where having a conversation with the supervisor where you say, well, um, 
you know, here are some articles, books that I've read in my field. This is the kind of writer I want to be. Um, can we work towards my becoming that kind of writer and not this other kind of writer? <laughs> but that's a really tricky one, you know, if you have a yeah, supervisor yeah. who well, just says, I, no. <laughs> I completely agree that uh, one fantastic place to start is indeed uh, stylish academic writing. I wonder, though, what you would say, since you have also uh, the background in working across the disciplines and uh, working also, um, as you had said, with the uh, how was it again? The academic uh, unit there that you'd worked in, helping teachers yeah. to teach, mm -hmm. right? Uh, mm -hmm. What would you say then would be uh, the place of, say, writing centers or writing programs in uh, enabling students, postdocs as well, perhaps even faculty, uh, mm -hmm. to write better? Well, it would be great if that was what they did. But I have a, I had a really interesting experience um, back when I was doing the research for, I guess, air and light and time and space. One way I did that research was by running writing workshops um, at universities around the world. And I usually wanted to run them for faculty um, rather than PhD students, because it's just a harder group to kind of get access to. But I was quite happy to do both. And so I would, um, I was trying to find, okay, who at any given university that I might want to visit would be the person who could help set something like that up, you know, a free workshop on advanced academic writing. Um, it was, it was interesting because in Europe, um, there was a lot more really high level academic writing training going on at postgraduate level or education, let's say. It struck me then in um, in non-English speaking countries like Germany or Sweden, um, Switzerland. And one thing that I observed was that often it seemed like somebody would be teaching uh, academic English course to non-native English speakers. And then that would be kind of the can of worms where they'd find out, oh gosh, it's not just a problem with writing in English, it's all these other issues around academic writing, you know, around the style, around getting the confidence, about the habits of your writing, about different forms of writing. And then these sorts of programs would then kind of build out to something that might be a, a much more expansive academic writing kind of um, course or support network or something for all PhD students. But in English-speaking countries, so in the U.S. or the U.K., it's there seems to be more of an assumption that people that the only people who need that extra academic writing are the second language speakers, and so there's less likely to be um, the starting place for all those other things that writers could really use. So when I went to the U.S. and I was trying to get a foothold into universities there, I would contact the academic development unit, often faculty development, and I'd say, I'd like to run a, a workshop on writing for academics, you know, on their research writing. And they'd come back and say, oh, that sounds really great. And I'm sure our academics could use something like that. But we're really our brand is to be the teaching and learning center for the university. And if we did something on research writing, that would confuse the message of what we're here for. So we can't do it, but maybe you should go talk to the writing center. So then I would go to the writing center. And again, this is in a US context mainly. They would say, um, wow, that, 
sounds really interesting, the idea of faculty writing, but we really are just here for the undergraduates. And then maybe they did a few things for the graduate students. And so I could count on one hand the universities in the U.S., and I, I do know some, that have any kind of well-developed writing support of any kind um, for faculty. And even for PhD students, anything more than, um, you know, just a few little things here and there is relatively rare. So to answer your question, I think it would be great for writing centers to be looking at academic writing at all levels, in all disciplines, and talking about faculty writing not just as something where we bring in the faculty writers to give little mini, you know, little presentations on how to write in this discipline, but actually thought of those centers as offering something to them. But there are all kinds of prejudices at work there, of course, because faculty are notoriously um, resistant to professional development in any area where they think of themselves, you know, where they're supposed to be experts. And that's a lot of that is vulnerability. They don't want to come to the writing workshop or the teaching workshop, for that matter, sometimes that might then imply that they um, need any kind of help. And I'm doing that in, in, square, um, in scare quotes, help, you know. Right, right, yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to untangle here. And I think it's fair to say that the anxieties that we talk about with academic writing cut across all levels and all disciplines in different ways. They're just different anxieties, perhaps. But, um, you know, can and should a writing center be doing work in all these areas? Absolutely. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> And it's clear from your book, um, and also I've I've been learning through my own teaching, uh, as my listeners will know, I teach uh, at the writing program in Heidelberg, that uh, what you say is entirely true about faculty. It's partly true even about students. Um, some advanced level students, doctor students will be more or less assured that they're doing it right. They just need to brush mm -hmm. up their English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what you're telling me from your experience in Europe was more the English wasn't the problem. It was the writing that was the problem. Um, it, it, it's, yeah, uh, and for all academics, um, but yes, the yeah. English ended up being sort of the route through to to um, exposing how much there is to learn in the field of writing. And look at me, I started with, you know, 13 years ago with a book on sentence structure, and that led to one on style more generally, and that led to one on writers and how we learn to write as academics and um, what our emotions are as academics. And then that's led to the next book, which is going to be all about the emotions around academic writing. It's, it's a massive topic. I mean, I will be researching this for the rest of my life and won't run out of ideas. So of course, this stuff's challenging for us then to, to learn and develop in these areas because there's so many different aspects to writing that are important. And style uh, is the craft of writing is, of course, right at the center, but you cannot untangle the craft of writing from emotions around writing, for example. Um, that's a, a big um, area of interest for me, the emotions around craft and style. Um, you can't disentangle style, as we've talked about, from power structures in the academy, um, from convention, 
And you also can't really untangle it from the behavioral stuff, um, productivity. If you want to be more productive, you need to write more. How do you write more? Well, um, some people write more by dashing things out and sending them off. Um, writing well <laughs> and writing more for many writers are diametrically opposed to each other because writing well takes more time. I think it's worth doing. But my my um, one way I would put it is that it's actually an ethical issue. Communication is hard. Writing is a particularly hard kind of communication. To communicate complex ideas to readers takes work. It's not easy. It takes work. So the ethical question is who's going to do the work? Is it going to be the writer who puts in that extra time to make it really clear and engaging? Or is it going to be the reader who has to untangle these long-winded sentences because the writers basically sent out something that's not too far from the first draft. In my code of ethics, it's really clear the writer is the one who should be doing the work so that the reader doesn't have to. But that means I'm the one who has to put in the time to get that clarity for my readers. And that's always gonna be a bit of a at war with the idea that I should be producing as much as I can, as quickly as I can. What I can say, though, is I'm a very, very slow writer because I craft and craft and craft and craft and edit, and I'm never quite satisfied. But when I send things out for publication, I have a very high hit rate. They arrive at the journals, and it's I, I never get told that it needs, you know, I might have my research and my ideas challenged, but I always get told it's well-written, that it was clear and easy to read. And the chances of it being accepted with with relatively minor revisions are pretty high because of the amount of work I've put in at the front end. I wonder what you would say if, um, because this topic of convincing people that the effort is worth it is mm. the perennial topic of anyone who's involved in writing instruction. Entering any particular faculty hall and saying, look, I'm here, I'm from the writing program, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. usually brings a number of rotten tomatoes in your direction. Mm -hmm. I wonder what, what it is that you that anyone in that position might be able to do to sort of cultivate, let's say, a writing culture. As you've made very crystal clear, this idea of written communication, doing it well is hard work. And it's not obvious, obvious, it's not obvious to many people, apparently, especially researchers, why they should bother. And yet, if you look, as you, as you made clear uh, towards the beginning of our uh, interview, if you look at many different published sources, it's so easy to tear them apart. In mm -hmm. fact, it's easy to tear them apart semantically, where you have logical infelicities or you have really inaccurate statements, things that the author, you know what the author wanted to say, but yeah. it didn't come out right. So literally, the science is wrong. Yeah, and I have <laughs> I, I, so I, many examples of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, I encounter them myself week for week. And, and, and what, I'm, what I'm wondering is, um, and I do want to get back to the book, <laughs> uh, but this is what the book is about, obviously. Um, I, I wonder if there is a way to create a writing culture. And that is essentially a, this idea of recognizing what writing is and seeing it for all its facets and then engaging in it. Is that a possibility, do you think? 
Yeah, well, we're jumping ahead several books, but where I've gone since writing stylish academic writing is to really think about um, craft as pleasure. So I think so many of us have been acculturated, so many of our students have been acculturated to see writing as something that's hard, it's not pleasurable. Um, and so having this person from the writing center come and say how, you know, you really should be spending more time on your writing, getting it right. You're already into that kind of deficit mode of, okay, this is my weakness. And, and you know, what you want to do then is just run away from it because it's not going to be fun. <laughs> you know, it's going to be hard work. It's one more thing. I'm already working hard. I already have all these other things. So as long as we're in that kind of mindset, we collectively, you know, in universities, as long as our students are thinking that way about writing, and many of them are, and often that's because of the way they've been schooled. You know, it's, it's um, writing is seen as this utilitarian thing. You've got to learn it. It's got lots of rules. If you get things wrong, somebody's going to put red ink on there or red track changes or whatever. You know, there's a lot of emotional baggage tied up with the hard work of writing well. And yet when I interviewed successful academic writers, what I heard over and over again was about the pleasure that they take in the hard work of the craft. And that's where, for me, linking writing with pleasure, which I'm writing about right now, back to stylish academic writing, to the craft of writing well, those two things have got to go hand in hand to be a long-term sustainable kind of enterprise. If, if the idea of stylish academic writing or even just engaging or clear, really well-written academic writing makes you just kind of sigh, you know, oh God, that sounds hard. The chances are not very good that you're going to put a lot of extra energy into it. The chances are not very good that it's going to be something where you're going to change and develop and grow because you're going to want to just get up and walk away from it at every possible chance. And I think consciously or unconsciously, um, we, again, collectively as teachers, as teachers of writing, as supervisors, as academics, we communicate a lot of that kind of eat your vegetables um, ethos to our students around writing. And, um, you know, I, I, I think shifting that, shifting the emotional response to writing in a way is that's where it's got to, that's what's got to come first. Mm. <laughs> it's not easy so again, to do, we get back especially to when teaching. you're given... Yeah, and if you're given 10 minutes at the beginning of a lecture to tell people about the writing center, it's really hard to say, um, you know, writing's, writing's actually fun and we're going to help you too. But actually, that's where I would start. You want to make, yeah. you want to have events, have um, approaches, have things that let people um, show people, yeah, that make people want to come, I guess. And I see people's eyes just light up when we've done a session on craft and they just get for the first time sometimes how much more energy comes into their writing when they turn that sentence around and make it active, when they make sure that there's some concrete language in there and it's not all abstract. They can, they can see, they can feel 
that they've written something more engaging. It's exciting. And the other people around them will affirm that. So you can have really energizing craft sessions if you can get people in the door for them. And then if they can become your kind of evangelists for others. Um, ultimately, I think that's going to be the approach to getting people in the door thinking about style rather than, you know, this is one more thing you have to do um, to, to be a good academic. Right, right. You bring up many of the points, and I think we can probably skip uh, skipping stone-like, uh, come, come through some of the chapters. Uh, you, you, you mentioned first person pronouns and engaging readers that would be uh, early chapters on or uh, when you talk about as you just said the the concrete nouns the vivid mm. verbs the active verbs and so on all of these um, sort of traditional uh, hallmarks of the good style which uh, you give uh, proof for and proof for time and again throughout the book stylish academic writing uh, one one point that's brought up uh, that I find quite interesting is in chapter seven which is called uh, hooks and sinkers it's about uh, getting the people in, getting mm -hmm. the people in the door. Uh, you do this wonderful uh, um, sort of spoof on the beginning of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by writing it in academic English. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, ch the chapter itself is worth it for that. I, 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 won't, I won't trouble listeners with my <laughs> rendering of it. Um, but it, it's, it's, again, proof of this idea that uh, you can translate the same content one way or the other. But getting people into uh, an article, into a book chapter, into a book, whatever it might be, is a really interesting question. And uh, one thing that struck me was, again, in these throughout the book are these highlights on style where you pick out a writer who's been recognized as somebody who, in their discipline, just does it well. Stephen mm -hmm. Greenblatt happens to be one who, who, whom I know also from, um, from, from literary studies. What I found interesting was that uh, if you if you're writing beginnings that start, you know, <laughs> in Shakespeare's London in some alleyway, and you do it again and again, you can out of your own good writing create your own convention. And Stephen Greenblatt even mentions this idea. I saw I was writing to a formula, and he shifted. Yeah. And I would say that that sort of awareness seems to really characterize the writer and brings us back perhaps to this idea of having pleasure. Absolutely. Because, yeah. Yeah. The, the stylists, the people, I interviewed some of them for the book that came after Stylish Academic Writing, some of the same people. Um, not Stephen Greenblatt, but I interviewed um, Stephen Pinker and a, a few other people that I talk about in the book or that, you know, whose writing I analyzed. And yeah, the pleasure in the craftsmanship, again, comes through. And in thinking about these things, one of my favorite quotes in Air Enlightened Time and Space is from... Um, Tony Grafton, historian of Princeton. And he talked about how he used to work in a theater and um, work building the sets. And he said, when I'm writing, I can practically smell the sawdust. And I just love that idea, you know, uh, of um, writing as this pleasurable craft. It's hard work. It's hard work, but you can smell the sawdust. You have this kind of satisfaction that comes from saying, okay, I've written too many punchy opening paragraphs in this mode. What can I do differently? For me, the whole book, of course, was an exercise in craft because I had to make sure I practiced what I preached. And there was no way that that chapter on opening hooks was going to open in a boring way, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> that does put you on the spot, doesn't it? it when, when you're writing about did. style, you, you've <laughs> you've got to do it. <laughs> but it um, it that, zinged at my style sorry. because every time I chose one of those techniques, you know, writing about concrete language. Okay, how am I going to do this concretely? Every time I use the technique, I bring in a technique that I'm writing about, and I use it. And they are all, they're like magic. You know, you use them and, and you go, wow, that's just so much better. Why don't I do that all the time? Well, because it takes extra mental energy. It's harder. And I think going back to what we talked about earlier, it's it feels riskier as well. There is is one uh, writing center that I spoke to in America that said, uh, I, I love what you say, writing is teaching. They call writing thinking. And mm. that seems also to ring true because as, as you say, it's it's harder. It's easier to write the research article that does the IMRAD that says it, repeats it again, repeats it again. So, I mean, as, as you will have experienced, uh, sometimes you're reading these articles, or you're reading these book length studies and you I mean, you're going mad for all the repetition that's gone, that's going on. You're just skipping whole pages trying to find yeah. what they want to say. Um, but if you're really word for word pushing a thought forward, I mean, that burns calories, right? I mean, you need you need a coffee afterwards or something, yeah, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this idea of writing as thinking, I absolutely agree with that. But I also don't want to read all of your thinking. <laughs> so it's part of the process, but it's not the output um, necessarily. And so one way I've heard it phrased is that um, I'd have to go back and look up the reference, but that um, we write to think, we edit, um, we write for ourselves, we edit for our audience, and then we publish for posterity. So we're writing to think, to figure out what we have to say, but the editing is when we're making sure that our reader gets it. And that's really the hard part. That's the building the bridge between what we want to say and what somebody else is going to get from it. And then that extra step of publication is then saying, okay, this isn't just about one reader, you know, next month, this is something that's going to sit on the shelf for you know, decades. And um, that's yet another step. And you don't really want your first early thinking about something to be what ends up sitting on the shelf, I don't think, unless you're doing it for, you know, for a point. <laughs> um, right. No, that's that, that that's a, a great point. And it shows the levels of writing, the complexity of the act itself, that it has at least those three stages, if not even sub-stages within them. Um, yeah, and I think it's really that, important to recognize them because a lot of um, academics, and I think this is particularly true in the sciences and social sciences, they believe on some level that, um, well, it's that write it up um, idea. They believe that every word they write needs to be publishable or else it's lost time. Um, whereas if you recognize writing as thinking, you could spend an hour just writing by hand some ideas towards your, your research from which you might end up pulling a few sentences or a few ideas. And it's not a wasted hour. It was a thinking hour. Um, but 
it's really hard to throw writing away. So for me, it's really important to think about those two stages of the process. And they're not clear-cut stages. They're very iterative. Some people repeat them over and over again. Um, there's lots of writing research that shows the variety of how, of how people work. But almost all writing is going to have some extent to which you're thinking on paper and some extent to which you're, um, you're having to edit or craft or shift that mood, that mode of, of communicating what's going to be read. So the more you're conscious of those stages and of how they work for you and which one you're in at a given time, um, the better, I think, for your, for your craft. But it shows what a complex process it is. I, I yeah, think, um, yeah. again, hooked to the emotions around writing, I think it's really, really common, particularly for PhD students and probably undergraduates as well, to think that everybody else is a better writer than they are. You know, their supervisor, whoever, that published writers are better writers than they are, and that they're the only ones who feel like when they write something down the first time, it's not quite what they wanted to say. Whereas in fact, that brilliant writer that they're reading probably has put it through 20 drafts. And so um, when you recognize that writing is hard work and you need to spend time on it and do a lot of editing, it becomes less, um, you're, you're no longer beating yourself up because your first draft wasn't perfect. I've interviewed a lot of writers and I can tell you that those who write perfect first drafts that don't need editing are maybe one in a thousand. I mean, I won't say it doesn't happen, but it is incredibly rare. Almost everybody I talk to, um, the more famous the writer, probably the more they, the more attention they give to the craft of writing. Um, Steven Pinker, he takes everything through six drafts and he talked about what they were. It's a whole sort of process. So if we can demystify the process itself, so that people recognize, students recognize how much craft goes into well-written prose of any kind, and then bring in those positive emotions so that hard work doesn't mean, oh, I hate it. Hard work means this is a challenge. I can get better at this. This is a craft. I'm going to create something meaningful. Um, that's, that really, to me, encapsulates what stylish academic writing is. Yeah, this this willingness. I mean, there seems to be some sort of loss aversion, um, and also, as you say, just realistically and practically, a matter of time, because you've spent, as as you mentioned, maybe an hour writing. You think, well, you know, something's got to come of it, and if that something happens to be clear thought, but nothing on the page, it can be obviously rather discouraging. It puts me in mind of uh, chapter. Uh, 12 called points of reference where you talk about citation and footnotes and other such uh, elements of a, of a document. Uh, <laughs> you talk about where footnotes can sometimes be the place where things are disposed of. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just sort of, <laughs> instead of throwing it away, you just chuck it into the end notes of the, the footnotes. Uh, this This willingness to you know, just say it just doesn't belong at all is is hard to muster. It's one of those elemental stylish uh, writer traits, isn't it? I mean, I know whenever I start a longer project, I open two files, one with the name and one behind the name extra. 
And yeah. I mean, that extra file will often be larger than the end document. <laughs> I just chuck things over there and uh, I've rarely ever return to it. I mean, once in a while, I remember, I think I said something. Um, yeah, but yeah. yeah. I love that calling it extra because that really, for me, it, that that goes with this idea of having positive emotions about the craft, right? So you're saying this isn't wasted. It's the extra. It's what didn't make it in maybe, but it's, it's still words of value. Um, it's so common for people to talk about, and this is from the next book, really, Air Enlightened Time and Space, but it's, I've heard so many times people saying, oh, you have to kill your darlings, right? There's that phrase. You have to take all of the um, extra words you put in, all of the things that you think were the best parts, and then you have to you have to slice them out, and that's what creates you know good readable prose. And I hate that metaphor. I hate it. <laughs> I don't want to think of my writing as something I have to kill. So I would much rather have it living over there in its happy extra folder. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. it's, it's more, it, right? It's more. <laughs> but I'm I'm devaluing it by calling it that. I talked to one writer who calls it, I still love you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a bit too personal for me, but I get the idea, definitely. But yeah. yeah, you know, so it's this idea that all writing has value, whether or not it ends up in the, in the finished um, document and using this language of killing things and, uh, you know, it's just not helpful. <laughs> Again, if you think of the craft, I think I have in, um, I have somewhere in one of those books, it's probably the other one actually, but um, Ted Hughes talking about Sylvia Plath as a poet, that she always reused her lines, but not necessarily in a poem. You know, she was a, a really rigorous stylist. So she had to cut something out. She would put it in a different file. I don't know what she called it. But the way he put it was that if she couldn't make a table out of it, she'd go back later and make a chair. And if she couldn't make a chair, maybe she'd make a stool or maybe a child's toy. And I love that idea that every sentence we've written has value, um, but it may not have value in that particular context, in that argument. You know, it may not belong there at that moment. And we can just put it aside and come back to it later or recognize it as, you know, a part of the process, but not a part of the product. And what I find is that your book, uh, Stylish Academic Writing, really gives you a number of the tools to uh, make those sentences that might become a chair or a table or whatever it might mm. be um, in, in the edited form. Um, there's so many different uh, wonderful, uh, for instance, in uh, chapter eight, where you talk about using narrative or um in uh, chapter nine, you talk about figurative language and examples, how, as you say yourself, I mean, when you apply these things, they just really work. They really make edited yeah. prose uh, come and, out. And, and because of all the weight of emotion around academic writing, if you pick up a book like Stylish Academic Writing and you thumb through and start reading these examples of brilliant writing, it could turn you off. You could say, that's too hard. I'll never be that person. But the way I tried to write it was you could you could choose the one technique that that one person's doing. Or if you're scared that you're not gonna, your writing won't be accepted or approved if you do too much outside of your comfort zone, you could say, what if I just try this one thing? What if I just try starting with an anecdote rather than with you know, one of these 
um, you know, statements like we see all the time of, um, well, the way I used to, I used to teach um, Yeats's Lita and the Swan and students would write papers about it. And um, there was always some student whose paper would begin with some equivalent of since the world began, there have been swans, you know, <laughs> that sort of sweeping generalization. And then you have to narrow it down to your topic, you know, but never before has anybody written specifically about the webbing in the foot of the swan. You know? <laughs> That's the standard academic move that people are taught or that they imitate. And when you start, right, you bring that up in uh, chapter. You bring that up in chapter seven there on the on the cars method. They create yeah, a research. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, carving out a research space and right, and, right. Um, yeah, there's all this kind of conventional stuff where every paper you read it just feels like the same paper, and so just to say, okay, this one time I'm going to start with a story instead, and then I'll move into my conventional academic article, but I'll have my reader's attention, and then you can just try that and see how it goes. Or you can try bringing in one metaphor, <laughs> one active verb. <laughs> um, so it kind of brings the process down to a level of materials and tools where you can choose to master one at a time and not feel like you have to do it all at once. And then gain confidence as you do that. Well, I know I uh, learned that from the book and I've seen it uh, in classes that I've taught have a very similar effect. Um, Helen, you've been uh, very generous with your time uh, and I just would like to perhaps ask you one last question, if you didn't mind, uh, what you happen to be working on at the moment. Well, the next book, as you mentioned, is called um, Writing with Pleasure. And so uh, it's very interesting, even as I'm writing it, I'm still finding myself writing sentences that to me just are not jumping off the page. And I look at them and I say, oh, it's too abstract. I'm trying, I'm pulling together all these ideas, but I need an image here. I need a concrete example. I need something you could see or touch to come into the sentence somehow. And as soon as I do that, you know, I get more pleasure from it as a writer and as a reader because I've brought in that little extra bit of energy. So yeah, still writing, not finding it any easier than I ever did, and yet getting um, that kind of joy from the, the challenge. Well, the perfect advertisement for everyone else to try. <laughs> I know I experience <laughs> it very similarly. Um, thank you very much. Uh, that is Helen Sword, and her book, Stylish Academic Writing, is out since 2012 with Harvard University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Helen. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. Until next time on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>